I'm reading from Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him to call his attention to its buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked? Truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Thank you, Bill. Everyone's favorite topic today, right? The end of the world. Seems like a topic that people are either completely disinterested in or very interested in, sometimes depending on who you're talking to. Uh, for the most, though, it can remain a topic that's just mysterious and confusing. What do we make of uh, some of these st- uh, confusing things that Jesus says, and especially that Revelation says when we get there? Uh, our daughter was telling us recently uh, that she's just not sure how the world could ever end. She says she knows that people pass away and stuff, but also people keep having babies. And in her mind, I guess, just people existing in the world means that it has to keep going on. And so she couldn't, couldn't make sense or heads or tails of it. But, so why are we talking about this today? Well, we are in our final week in this series, uh, reflecting upon the larger teachings recorded from Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. For the most part, I've been trying to uh, give kind of larger chunks of Jesus' own words in the Gospels as plainly as they appear on the pages of your Bible. Sometimes I have been paraphrasing or rewording or explaining when it seems like the meaning maybe isn't completely obvious as you go across cultural context uh, or just from a plain reading of a text here. Uh, we have worked through, so far, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. We've done Jesus' instructions to, for outreach to the disciples. We've talked about the parables of the kingdom in Matthew chapter 13. Uh, last week, we talked about Jesus responding to this question from the disciples of who is the greatest, and he goes on to talk about the, the value of children and the kingdom, and also the meaning of community and what it means for us to together value each other as God's children. And today, we are talking about this long discourse that he has concerning the end. Uh, this last teaching occurs during the last week of Jesus' ministry. It's sometime after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem as crowds have celebrated his arrival, but Jesus kind of butt he- butts heads with the leadership, especially in the temple area. And that warm welcome that he received it doesn't last very long, uh, mostly because uh, the religious elite are not sure what to do with him, and they, they feel like he's a threat uh, to what's happening, especially after he just went into the temple and flipped over tables. Uh, going on there. As I was talking with our kids about that this week, uh, it was a couple weeks ago, Jesus said, how in the world does Jesus jump so high to flip over tables? I have a picture. Jesus flipping over tables, right? Apparently AI can help us out to picture what this looks like in our minds, right? But uh, as they are walking by the temple, the, the disciples later on, Uh, as all of this has been going on, the disciples say, hey, look at how magnificent these these buildings look, how impressive it is. But Jesus starts telling them it's not going to last. It's going to be destroyed. And in verse 3, they say, tell us, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? 
Now, to pause here just for a second, we know that the the temple had been destroyed once before whenever uh, Israel was taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And so the temple they used to have had been destroyed. And and also there had been an intervening period uh, when the Greeks were in charge where there was a defilement of the temple that happened uh, as well. And it was rededicated later after they fought this war to gain back control of the temple and, and rededicated unto the Lord. Now, the disciples, as they're hearing Jesus talk about that, they can't seem to fathom the idea that something could happen to the temple again without, you know, the end end being right around the corner. Right? The, to them, it's like this would have to mean it's the end of all things. So I imagine that Jesus uh, maybe paused here for quite a bit to think of how best to prepare, prepare his disciples for what would be coming. There's no way they're going to understand everything. So he has to just tell them some of the most important things, uh, ways that they can hopefully understand. What we'll see in his, his answer, his, his teaching here, is some direct responses to the question about the temple, but also some responses that are clearly talking about something more that is difficult to parse part. So Jesus answers them. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. This is in verse 4. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. And, I, and they will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Think back to when we had each of our kids, and especially when we first had Deacon, uh, our first experiences, Lydia's first experiences with Braxton Hicks contractions, and I was just observing, trying to figure out what happens, right? Uh, but it seems like the real thing at the time, because it's the first experience of something like that. Um, Braxton Hicks contractions can be very uncomfortable, seriously uncomfortable at the time, but it's only a shadow of what's to come later, right? These are the beginnings of the birth pangs, Jesus is saying. Verse 9, he says, Then you will be handed over to be persecuted, and put to death. You'll be hated by all nations because, uh, because you bear my name. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But if you endure all of this until the end, you will experience the fullness of the kingdom. You will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached and the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So, he says in verse 15, when, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea lead to the mountains. Now, Jesus probably did not say, let the reader understand to the disciples as he was talking, right? This is Matthew's insertion, kind of commenting on what uh, what Jesus is saying here. Uh, now, Daniel chapter 9, it's kind of what he's referring to. Daniel chapter 9, there's this prophecy that speaks of an anointed one, a Messiah who would come, but who would be put to death. And then there would come a ruler who would set up in the temple some unholy and sacrilegious abomination that would lead to conflict, destruction, and desolation. Many people kind of point to this as being something that had happened in the intertestamental period during the... Uh, uh, the time of Antiochus in, in the Greeks, a guy named Antiochus IV came in and took over the temple, basically, and, and it 
started initiating uh, sacrifices unto Zeus instead of unto God. And so it was this incredible uh, sacrilege in the temple. And there was uh, a revolt led by a family called the Maccabees, and they eventually were able to take back over the temple and they rededicated it. But this, this time this, uh, is what many people kind of refer to as this abomination that causes desolation. This could be what Jesus is referring to here. And now he's saying, remember that thing that happened? Something similar will happen again with equally disastrous results. So he says, when you see this kind of thing happen, get to safety. Paraphrasing, here's it. If you're on your porch, don't waste time grabbing things from the house. Just go. If you're out at work, don't bother going back to get your coat. If you, and it's going to be particularly difficult for the vulnerable People like pregnant women and nursing mothers. So pray that you don't have to flee during the wintertime or times of sacred worship. In verse 21, he says, For then there will be great distress, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now, never to be equaled again. And if those days of trial had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of God's chosen people, those days will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says to you, Look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, Don't believe it. For false messiahs, false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even those that God has chosen. See, I've told you ahead of time. So Jesus is interweaving this good news here. Even though all of this sounds really scary, he's saying, I'm telling you ahead of time what to expect, to know that God will sustain you here. So here Jesus seems to delineate also here the trials of the time of the temple destruction coming uh, a little bit later from his return, which will come at a later stage. is That temple destruction will be traumatic, but the days of trial will be cut short in mercy. It's not the end end. Verse 26, so if anyone tells you, there he is out in the wilderness, don't go out. Or here he is in the inner rooms, don't believe it. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. That phrase, Son of Man, is the second reference now we've had to the book of Daniel. Uh, In Daniel chapter 7, there's this prophecy again of one who is like a Son of Man, who is risen up and and given authority over uh, this everlasting kingdom. And Jesus, while he doesn't, uh, seem to have any quibbles about people referring to him as Messiah. He often doesn't use that as the title that he talks about himself in. He loves to use this title of Son of Man. Jesus says he is that Son of Man, and although he will be slain, he will ultimately return in glory, coming on the clouds of heaven. He says when that happens, verse 27 here, it won't be secret. It'll be plain to all. It'll be like this, uh, this event that everyone is going to be able to notice. Yet, the spiritually dead will continue to fixate lies. And he has this interesting saying here, wherever the carcass is, there the vultures gather. When the end is actually arriving, he says, it'll be like Isaiah has predicted. This is in verse 29, the sun darkened, moon not giving light. It's like the stars and planets are shaken from their orbits. Verse 30, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And all peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. 
all peoples being uh, the peoples who have, have not received Christ, do not know him, are recognizing this Lord mourning because they realize what has happened, what they have not uh, prepared for. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. They will gather God's chosen people from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Something to notice here, too, is that this is not an idea of some grand exit from the world. Um, but instead it's this idea of being gathered to him as part of the welcome wagon uh, as, as Jesus is coming back. Remember that just a couple days before this was the triumphal entry, something uh, very uh, reminiscent of what Jesus is talking about here, where he was coming into Jerusalem and people came out to meet him and were uh, journeying with him into the city, celebrating his coming. This is picturing something very similar at his return, that the, the angels would gather everyone together to welcome him in as king. We're talking about a drama here of cosmic proportions. So even the destruction of the temple and uh, other things that we experience in our life from, from wars and, and earthquakes and things, they, they seem really crazy. He's here talking about stars falling from uh, the sky. He's talking about cosmic things happening here. So, we've got temple destruction, the end of the world, both very serious matters. But he says God will sustain, God will make things plain, if we will be attentive. The question is when will this happen? When, how should we be prepared? Jesus likens it to checking for a fig tree to ripen. When you see tender twigs and budding leaves, you know that the summer is coming. So also we can see the signs of the end. Maybe not with precision. What exact date it will be, just like we had Groundhog's Day here recently. We have, we're looking for signs of spring, right? We know it's right around the corner. We may not know the exact date that it'll change, but we look for the signs, right? He says we can trust that the faithful will not die out before the end has come. No matter what trials may come, there will always be a faithful remnant. In the church, he says in verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but his words will never pass away. But he does caution. He says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. Just like everyone was surprised by Noah's flood, people won't see the end coming because they'll be so busy with normal life, eating, drinking, marrying, uh, that they won't notice. That's in verse 40, it'll be like two men being in a field, one taken and the other left. Two women uh, grinding with a handmill, one taken and the other left. And again, the, the emphasis here is, is on the urgency, the surprise of the situation, not necessarily even just the separation part. Now, Jesus follows this with three parables. That I, I'm going to paraphrase the parables here to try to make them a, a little more accessible to our modern context, but you can read them in your Bibles as well as we go. Um, the first one, he says... Uh, Suppose you knew that a thief was going to break into your house. Wouldn't you keep watch? Wouldn't you install a security camera or something? You would keep watch to, uh, to be ready for when it was going to happen. Or uh, suppose that you were waiting, uh, you were house-sitting for someone on a long trip. And if you decided to throw a party and trash their place, wouldn't you be in huge trouble if they came back while it was still a mess? I can't think of how many uh, TV shows and movies have used that plot of, uh, their kids uh, throwing a party where the parents were away, right? And they come back before they uh, were ready. Or suppose, 
Suppose that you were waiting for a bride and groom to welcome you into the wedding banquet with the rest of the bridal party. Maybe you were a special part of, of the wedding here. Wouldn't you feel awful if they had come and gone to welcome you because you weren't ready yet? Now you're stuck outside because you're on, you're, they're not able to find you on the list. And yet there's a place for you, but you can't convince the person to let you into the door. So in chapter 25, verse 13, he says, So be ready and keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. These are all different ways to convey the same point, right? That while we ultimately don't know when Jesus will return, we know that he will. He's told us that he will, so we should always be ready, both so that we don't miss out on the joy of his coming kingdom, and also so that we won't be found guilty of squandering what he has entrusted to us. He is uh, he's talking about more than just outright evil or waste during this time. He also seems to be talking about this temptation that we often have towards complacency or towards fear. We're thinking about uh, our, our own selves and, and, and minding uh, our own concerns rather than thinking about his kingdom and what has been entrusted to us. How will we value the precious time that has been given to us and the gifts that he has given. Jesus asks us to imagine a man who has entrusted entrusted his wealth to some servants while on a journey, expecting them to make a profit. He says, two of them invested the money and doubled it while the man was away. But the one who received the least amount, he was afraid. He'd heard that the man was this hard-nosed and shrewd person, so instead of risking any loss, he goes out and he buries the money in a hole. Thinking it'll at least be secure in that way. And when the, the man who had lent the money returns or, or gave them stewardship of it, uh, the ones who had invested it and doubled the wealth, they were praised. But when the other one tried to explain himself, the man was incredulous. He said, if you were so scared, couldn't you have at least put it in the bank to gain some interest? So he took the money and he split it between the others to manage going forward. But even more than that, this is where the parable gets really dark. It says that the man calls the servant worthless and orders him to be thrown outside into the dark and into danger. I don't think Jesus is necessarily saying that he is harsh like this man is harsh, but he's, he's drawing on this image of a hard-nosed ruler that most would have easily connected with. Real-life figures that they, they may know of who act just like this. And he's saying, look, if it matters to take care of their valuables, how much more should you care for what's valuable to God? Was the king of kings. He explains a little more clearly what he means uh, about God's kingdom in this next parable that he shares. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him. He will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. King will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For once I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison. You came to visit me. The righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When, when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? We don't remember any of this. The 
king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This is what it looks like to, to keep watch faithfully, to multiply what Jesus has given, to tend to those who are in need of his love. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick in prison and didn't help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. They'll go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous eternal life. This is what it looks like to bury the gift. We get so lost in our day-to-day concerns that we, we fail to see and attend to the needs of others in our community. What it looks like to squander the wealth of what Jesus has given us in his kingdom. Now, there's a lot to digest here in everything that Jesus has said. And if you're having trouble figuring out what any of this means for yourself, just imagine how the disciples felt. Right? I imagine they were very confused by his responses. And after all that, it says that he tells them, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. So he tells them that, that bit of information that's very cheery again. Now, it wouldn't be until after they had witnessed everything that happened with, his, uh, with the cross, their best friend, their teacher, dying after they had all abandoned him. It wouldn't be until after they witnessed him rise from the grave and ascend into heaven that any of this would begin to make sense to them. The early decades of the church, they would bring some intense persecution. The Jewish people, both Christ followers and non, they would experience the incredible devastation that he foretells here about the destruction of the temple for the second time, and one that is yet to see restoration even today. But even that seems to pale in comparison to the trials that he says are yet to come. He compares it to birth pangs, that they come in waves, some that seem intense, uh, until you experience one afterwards that's even more intense, right? We've had so many cycles throughout history of, of it seeming like the end is right around the corner. Wars are getting more intense. There's natural disasters everywhere. This has to be it. Right? And you get people who predict uh, the, the dates of when it's going to happen, and that date comes and goes, and it, it hasn't come yet. He says there will be a lot of things that seem alarming, and you should be prepared for it all because you will need to endure. But don't let it distract you from the most important thing, hope. Jesus will return. Sin, brokenness, and evil will finally face judgment. The question that we must ask and answer is, what will we do with what has been given to us? You turn to that last slide there. Will we watch for his return, or will we become lazy and complacent? Will we take care of the gifts given to us or party as if he's not coming back? Will we be ready for the celebration or will we miss out because we were unprepared? Will we build his kingdom with the gifts entrusted to us or hide them away for fear of messing up? 
Will we feed the hungry, clothe the naked, heal the sick, free the captive? Or will we turn a blind eye because it's not our problem? As we close today, I'd want to invite you to reflect on these questions. If all of the glorious gift that Jesus has given us as inheritors in his kingdom, the blessings that he gives, what, what are we doing with what he's given? Are, are, we, are we ready? Are we looking constantly for how we can be bearers of the good news? How we can be bearers of, uh, of joy and hope uh, for the kingdom? to care for those who are in need? Or do we get lost in our day-to-day lives, activities, and just stop thinking about it? Let's pray. Lord, I know that in my own heart and spirit and life, I can be so prone to distraction that it's very easy for me to get lost in uh, my own day-to-day concerns, both with our family, but also just me personally and the things that I want, my priorities. My eyes aren't open to see what's going on in the world around me. Not even thinking about the end, but even just thinking about the now and the the needs of of my neighbors, uh, fellow humanity, Lord. Would you open our eyes to see, to see as you see, be able to love and care as you love and care. And in all things, would you ready our hearts and in doing so, give us a a sense of assurance and uh, and purpose as we await your return to make all things new. That we would await that not with a sense of anxiety or fear, but of joy and anticipation. To know that even when things get back in our world. There's hope in you that the ultimate joy is coming. May that give us great peace, even in the midst of trial. Amen.